Welcome to the Australian Weight Loss Surgery Podcast, where every two weeks we explore all the aspects of the weight loss surgery journey. We'll hear from a range of experts, including bariatric surgeons, psychologists, patients, and dietitians, sharing up-to-date, informative advice to help fast-track your long-term weight loss success. Welcome back to the Australian Weight Loss Surgery Podcast. I'm Jackie Lewis, Clinical Nutritionist for BN Multi. And today I have with me Cal Patterson from Sydney, Bariatric Psych and also founder of Why Change. Welcome, Cal. Thanks for your time. I know it's a busy Thanks, time Jackie. for you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's, um, I don't know, some of us have more time, some of us have less time at the moment. It's a bit of an odd time all around. Yeah, I think you're right, actually, aren't you? It's a good way of summing it up. <laughs> today we're going to explore this crazy time we're living in and looking at different effects of lockdown and things that you're noticing in practice and some really handy tools on how we manage this time of uncertainty and restriction. So you're obviously dealing with that in practice at the moment and um, seeing all sorts of things arise. We all know we're all experiencing a little lockdown fatigue at this stage of the pandemic. Some days, even though we feel like not much is happening, it can feel like we've run a marathon. Is there some explanation for this in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, I, I I think it's really important to recognize what's happening here. And, you know, obviously different people are in, are in different levels of restriction, but one way or another, I think people are generally have generally pulled back on the amount of activity, on the amount of kind of time they're spending out there doing things, you know, traveling on transport, going into shopping centers, going into markets, going and mingling with people, you know, concerts have been canceled and, and so forth. And I, I think one of the things I'm seeing a lot of that actually concerns me is that uh, people are being told or telling each other or telling themselves that they have to keep busy. I've even heard, you know, um, public officials say things like, well, you know, make sure you keep busy. And I mm. see um, not all, but but sometimes I'll see, you know, schools or workplaces that will send extra work or extra tasks or extra materials home uh, and saying, look, here is some extra things that you can do to keep busy. And I, I look... Different people will have different opinions about this, but my strong view is that that's the opposite of what we need. There are different names for it. You could call it burnout. You could call it kind of claustrophobia, fatigue. Uh, I've used different ways of describing it. Sometimes I'll talk about, you know, imagining a fish swimming around in the ocean being carried around by the currents here and there. And so, you know, under normal conditions, the the, the hustle and bustle and movement and the the kind of flow of tasks and commitments that, that happen around us, that creates a kind of energy and momentum that we can ride and benefit from. But when all of that falls away, you have to do twice as much work just to achieve the same amount of productivity. You don't have, you know, a bus to catch. You don't have a meeting like to get to in person. You don't have, you know, people phoning you up. There's just nowhere near as much happening around you. Even when you go to the shops, you know, there are far fewer people there. You don't have to wait as long perhaps, but for other things you have to wait much longer. So psychologically, even though physically there's not a lot happening, psychologically, all of the things that we rely on to carry us through the day, they've all kind of all largely disappeared. So, you know, that analogy of the fish that I give, you know, swimming around and being carried here and there by the waves and the currents. Well, we've taken that fish out of the ocean and we've put them in a little, little uh, stagnant fish pond, a uh, fish bowl, you know, and so that fish might swim around and around and around and around, and there's no currents to carry that fish along. And so at the end of the day, that fish might say, well, I'm exhausted. I've been swimming and swimming and swimming all day, but I feel like I've gone nowhere. Why am I so tired? So the general 
overarching advice I'm giving to people, whether it's patients that I see or or colleagues that I talk to, even friends, it's like, for goodness sake, please lower your standards, (laughs) at least for the time being. I think you mentioned 50%, didn't you? Like, yeah, and that makes sense. It's like treading water rather than swimming in a current. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to do, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a rule of thumb, but you've got to do about twice as much work just to keep the same amount of things happening. It's twice as much effort to get out of bed. It's twice as much effort to get through a meeting. It's it's just, you know, because there are no, there's not as many things kind of pushing you along to do those things. So you've got to motivate yourself. So, you know, it's important to be realistic about how much you, uh, you're going to get accomplished in a typical day. And to not feel like you're underachieving at a time like this, you know, when things are, there are things that we generally do that are quite easy, but now if there's an interruption to that service, we find we have to wait for it. I likened it in some ways of being back in the 1950s where I think we were a lot more patient because we did wait for things and there's some things we have to wait for and other things that are more pressing. But it's this, it's all under this umbrella of change and restriction and limitation, I suppose, isn't it? Where I think you're right, we're not giving that enough weight and kind of letting ourselves understand that from a psychological perspective. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think most people recognize that it's, you know, a, we're in a different set of circumstances these days. So I think most people recognize that we have to adjust and adapt, but I think there's a lot of confusion about exactly what that adjustment needs to be. And so some people, I think, you know, with the best of intentions, they kind of look at that, you know, they, they look at falling away of the amount of activity. And so they sort of might logically think we've got to compensate for that by doing more. But I think really if you know the adaptation that most of us need to be able to make right now is to be able to slow down and leave space for things and recognize that not a, not only is a lot less going to happen in a given day but also you're going to accomplish a lot less in a given day for the same amount of work and so whether that means giving yourself longer time frames to get things done you know that 50% rule are you going to double you know sort of spread out your usual weeks accomplishments across two weeks spread out your usual day's accomplishments across two days or whether that's going, sitting down even and and making a bit of a list of all the things that you, you know, feel that you need to get done in a typical day and working out which of those things you're going to postpone. And to be okay with that, I think takes a little while of making that adjustment and then not looking at it like I've wasted time and beating yourself up about this now has taken me two days for it normally takes me one day, you know, what am I doing wrong? Or, you know, just to not have that negative understanding of it. It's more about compassion for oneself and an understanding of where we're all at as well, I think. Yeah, that's really important. And I mean, if we can get our heads around that, it's it's a useful bit of, I guess, learning that applies actually in other situations. I, I've had conversations like this. It's, it's uh, you know, I, I haven't, this isn't the first time we've needed to talk about something like this or think this way, whether it's, you know, with a, a young family that have a, a newborn baby at home. And so it's, you know, it's a little bit of a similar situation mm-hmm. where you're kind of stuck at home and, and uh, you know, your activities are very much restricted by this little one and how it takes over everything or whether you're someone who's just come home from 
surgery, maybe bariatric surgery, and you've got to spend a period of time in, you know, in recovery. There are other kinds of situations where, you know, you might find yourself, you know, just very kind of a bit cut off from the outside world. And it is a, a time that needs, you know, you need to make some adjustments to allow for that. Yeah, and I think it's respecting that in a lot of ways. When you do compare it to the recovery after bariatric surgery, that's a good point because I hear in our groups, so many people are booking their surgery in and then they're posting in our group asking when they can go back to work and when will they feel good again. And I think we also forget that we're recovering and we're, you know, we've just had major surgery and there's a whole lot of not only physical adjustment and recovery that needs to take place, but it's also, again, allowing that, allowing your mind to catch up with what's just happened and what's changing and to learn this new way of living your life. It's not unlike what we're doing here at the moment is that when we're talking about lockdown, learning to do everything in a different way and to give yourself that space to develop an understanding and recover and convalesce, I suppose, a little bit as well. So, you know, there are some people who will find silver linings in, you know, in when they're in a lockdown kind of situation, they'll, re, you know, maybe if you can let yourself slow down and take the pressure off in terms of what you think you need to get accomplished, you know, that can then free up some space for, sometimes you can even find yourself appreciating certain things more people are it's funny you look at it you know social media you see people taking photos of their own backyards and that's not yeah. something you often see in reg you know at other times they're always taking photos of themselves at the beach or at some other fabulous activity but you know, there are just as lovely images just as lovely experiences some people are able to have just within a smaller sphere you're right and i think that's keeping it real it's not a facebook full of holiday shots anymore it's like this is everyone's in it together and this is how we're you know supporting each other in a way and finding that positive where possible. I've come across a few stories where people are falling off their usual health and well-being regime, which is quite understandable. Do you have a few strategies that might help with this, with either the patience that it takes to understand that we, it's going to be interrupted in some way, just while we're experiencing this disruption and the usual cues that, like you say, you know, the current that keeps us moving forward. Do you have any tricks there? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously I've I've just been, um, you know, saying, talking about, you know, lowering your expectations expectations and, and dialing back your your aspirations at a time like this. Not a time for huge strides of progress to be made. This is perhaps more a time of, um, you know, just a maintenance. And so if you're sort of trying to set goals for yourself, it might be rather than sort of trying to make huge progress, it might be just about thinking about what you want to preserve and therefore what are some of the things you might let go of. But specifically what I'm encouraging people to do is rather than even set lots of goals or try to work towards certain things, instead to take what you're wanting to do in a typical day and just think about how you've got that arranged. If you're spending a lot of time at home, rather than trying to do battle with yourself or have lots of willpower around holding off um, certain foods or holding off certain activities or trying to force yourself to go out and go for a walk, I think at a time like this, it's more about structure than about you know trying to achieve new things um, or raise your standards. It's more about keeping your standards as they are, but thinking about restructuring or adding a bit of structure to what you've got. So specifically, I, I'm talking about two things. There are two, I guess, strategies that I would encourage people to maybe consider. One of them is, you know, if you've got a bunch of people in the household, you know, maybe two or three or four or six or uh, eight, like one family I talked to recently, there are eight of them all rattling around in a house. Never lonely, would you? Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
but I think they are all kind of, you know, it makes life quite complicated. You've got, you know, eight little ping pong balls all bouncing off each other. <laughs> That's the first and simplest way we can bring some structure into a household and the daily life is just to set a regular meeting. Everybody sits down together, maybe on a Saturday morning or, or whenever it might be. And, and it's, it, you can literally have a meeting just like you might at work where, you know, everybody, you know, gets a say, we might vote on things, you know, what are we going to have for dinner on Wednesday or what's the movie we're going to watch on Tuesday or, you know, and, and it also gives everyone a chance to maybe raise concerns that they've got and just to bring a bit of order and a little bit of sort of structure to the week. Sometimes that can save, you know, reduce the amount of conflict and disagreements that you're having if we're all kind of in each other's pockets and, and getting on each other's nerves. Little arguments and scuffles can break out between people, even if it's just two people um, living in a house together to set aside that time and to bring some structure to the discussion and say, all right, what are we going to do about the fact that you always leave the toilet seat down or up or whatever it is, you know, let's, let's formally write this down and agree right here and right now, and we'll put it to a vote or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so bringing a little bit of that structure or some aspects like that, writing things down, even putting things on the fridge, sort of things that we've all agreed on everyone in this household, that's the first thing. And that can save a lot of emotional work that might otherwise be being done in just trying to deal with things that irk you and irritate you. Mm. That's one thing. But specifically to come to health behavior like eating, snacking, you know, doing walks and things like that. What I see happens as soon as people go into a restricted environment, like being locked down at home, is that all of the boundaries that they have, they all start to get blurry and break down. So one activity tends to blend into another. And so you know, again, you know, there's no reason we don't have any guests coming around. So we don't have any real reason to clean the house straight away. We don't have any real reason to have dinner at the dinner table. We don't have any reason to turn the TV off while we're having dinner. You know, we don't have to eat at a set time. We don't really have to have much structure because, you know, no one's watching. No one's going to come and visit. We can all just let our standards slip. And I guess to an extent that's okay. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to give anyone a hard time for wearing pajamas and Ugg boots to a Zoom meeting. But I do think that if you want to maintain some, you know, healthy behaviors at home, rather than trying to cut back on junk food or focus on trying to, you know, restrict yourself even more than you're being restricted by the world, bring some structure in. So snacking is a big one. What I encourage people to do is rather than cut out snacking or try to rein that in, just make sure that when you're when you're having something to eat, you don't do anything else at the same time. If you're if you're sitting there watching TV, watching the Olympics or or whatever it might be, and you might get an urge to grab something to eat, well, if you're going to eat something, turn the TV off, stand up, go to the kitchen have that, prepare that food, have it in the kitchen while the TV's off. And then when you're finished, then, you know, you put the food away and you go back and you keep watching TV. Now, it might seem like a simple little discipline to have to keep things behaviorally separate. But what you'll find is it works in your favor. It reduces the amount of work you have to do over time is your, your brain will, your brain will want to sort of automate things. It will want to, your brain's job is to learn associations between things. If you tend to have a bowl of snacks next to you when you're watching TV, then every time you sit down to watch TV, your brain will say, Hey, don't we normally have a snack right now? If you, if you do two things together, if you have food in the car, then every time you get in the car and turn the ignition on, there's some little part of your brain that's going to want to reach over and, and, and grab a handful of what's normally in the cup holder. 
So keeping things separate, it has the advantage that it doesn't mean you have to use lots of discipline to to cut back on things. It's not a lot of work to just keep things separate and do one thing at a time. Um, But what you'll find is it it also saves you work later on because if you never eat at the same time as watching TV, then you won't feel like those cravings for food when you sit down, you know, and watch or watch a movie. If you keep food out of the car, then your brain will lose the association between eating and driving. So the places that I'm encouraging people to keep food out of is, you know, obviously when watching TV, uh, when driving, keep food out of the bedroom, please. If you've got your home office set up somewhere with your computer screen and, and you're tapping away, don't bring food into that home office. If you really must have something, I guess, you know, have a glass of water or a cup of tea maybe, but but don't bring food in, don't, don't eat lunch at your desk. If Gosh, you know, if you're working from home, then the kitchen is only a few steps away. So it shouldn't be too hard to keep those two things separate. So set those boundaries in your home, set some physical boundaries around where food is allowed to be consumed and where it isn't. Set some boundaries around your daily routine, you know, make sure that try to make there's a clear time where you start work for the day and a clear time where you finish. And, you know, these days you can do things like put your phone on silent or put it in do not disturb mode and keep those behavioral boundaries as well. So separate one behavior from from another. You know, when it's time to eat, we'll eat. When it's time to do something else, we'll do something else. And we just keep all of these things sort of separated and in their right space. And I think what you'll find if you bring some of those boundaries in, that that makes life a lot easier for you over time. You have to work a lot less harder just to preserve a kind of a healthy amount of food intake. So those, that stretch saves a lot of work in, in the long run. And I think when you mentioned our brains love to marry things together and how we then sit on the couch and somehow we're triggered to want food. That's really, I think it really resonated with the way I looked at, you know, what I do and what I pair together. So yeah, of course, I think there's a lot of people who are working at their kitchen table with their laptops and, you know, redefining that space given, you know, your work time is say nine till four or whatever it is that in that time, that kitchen space or the kitchen table works as an office space and then pack it all away and, you know, actually define that that's over for the day. A lot of people are mentioning that they're very aware of, you know, they're working from home and they're aware that if they're not kind of logged in and active, even when there's not, you know, a hundred things to do because work has also changed as well. And there are, you know, things in different people's working lives that have, you know, either some people are really, really busy as a result of what's happening and others have got a kind of a lull in their work, but there's this underlying, I'm not doing enough because I'm seen as not being logged on. And, and that kind of, you know, feeling of big brother, I suppose, have you had many experiences with that, Cal? Yeah, I think um, that's another kind of boundary that becomes blurry. When the in psychology, we talk about a signal um, or the signal versus noise ratio. So, you know, when you are physically going into an office and walking in the door and sitting down at a desk or sitting down at a meeting, then the signal is very clear. I'm at work. You know, if you want to duck out to grab some lunch or, or whatever, then, you know, there's a sense of like, I'm here or I'm not here. Whereas when you're at home, how do you send a signal how do you and and how do you receive a signal from your workplace that they see you at work and this idea of logging on and logging off i guess it becomes something that we start to rely very heavily on and we find ourselves relying hev- you know much more heavily on a whole range of different kinds of behaviors and and things that we never really might have relied on before I know of people who will you know set their alarm for six o'clock get out of bed walk to their office 
their, their computer and quickly send off a whole bunch of emails and then go back to bed <laughs> <laughs> um, almost as a way of showing everyone, look, I'm awake, I'm alert, I'm thinking about work. And I mean, I guess it comes back to that idea of, of some structure and, and having those boundaries. Yeah. Um, I, I know that we all worry about how we come across, particularly in a workplace, you know, what's the impression I'm making? And maybe that's a, that's a, that's another podcast episode about, mm. about self-worth and, and, um, and how people's get their sense of self-worth and their sense of value, whether they get that from outside um, the outside world and the, the praise and reinforcement from others, um, or whether people can get that from inside and, and knowing that they're a good person, you know, just by carrying that sense from within. That's that's a whole other conversation, I suppose. And that is something that sometimes changes around weight and weight loss. And but I mean that might be an interesting one to talk to touch yeah, on definitely. another time. But yeah, but but I think it does present a challenge for people when you might feel a bit invisible um, or, or feel like the signals and the boundaries are a bit vague. Mm-hmm. So it comes back to that sense of if you if you can set and maintain some clear boundaries for yourself and particularly around work or, you know, your, your daily commitments. That, and I guess that, we're relying a lot on our internal motivation. And if we're not, if we go to work because we love that kind of the accolades of that and the feedback, even though it's not a pat on the back every time you walk into the office, of course not, but it's the um, the self kind of, you know, feeling like we've achieved something for the day because we got up and went. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yes. And then now yeah. if we're working at home and there's not that feedback from the external world. And I, I liken that to that kind of first year after weight loss surgery where, you know, the first year you're not feeling hungry, you're, you know, really committed and the world is feeding back to you that something's changing and people are commenting yeah. and family are involved and that sort of stuff. And then yeah. that's that kind of external motivation that keeps us going, which is lovely. And when that wanes is also when things can start to fall over because we're looking for that external reinforcement. And if we don't have enough of that internal feedback of, you know, I'm doing this for me or I'm making these changes and I can see the benefits and, you know, it's great that people are noticing, but it's also I'm doing it because within myself, I want that. I think that's when things start to change in that kind of 12 to 18 months also after surgery, it gets a bit harder when you become, you know, it's an accepted thing that you've lost weight and you've changed and and everyone kind of gets on with it. Um, So it's similar in that regard for looking for that external reinforcement as well. Yeah. And so, I mean, if I can say to anyone who might be listening to this right now, you know, you're not alone. Um, If, if you struggle to feel that you're doing a good enough job, then you're just like dozens of people, dozens and dozens of people that I talk to every week, whether they're bariatric patients or, or, or not, you know, I think this is something that everybody struggles with one way or another is to feel that we're, that we've done enough, that we're good enough and to get that sense of, of self-worth and different people have different ways of getting it. Some healthy, some unhealthy, um, <laughs> but it's a, it is, it's a real challenge. It's a challenge at the moment in lockdown because you've lost contact with those people that might make you feel good. Yeah. Um, and, and you do again, just like a lot of other things, you've got to fall back upon your own internal resources, just like that goldfish in the bowl to, to kind of drive yourself forward and, and get a sense of, of, of energy and momentum and, and mm. worth in what you're doing. And that's a real challenge. And I can't say that I've got wonderful magic solutions for that, but I can <laughs> say at least to begin with that there are a lot of fishbowls that I'm getting glimpses of these days. It would be, yeah, and a mixture of what goes on in those fishbowls too, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. And, and looking at that, like we're in a time where things are very different. Is there a difference between falling off a little and totally giving up and adding fuel to 
the fire in some ways. Can you, you know, do you see people who are lowering their expectations and kind of taking that kind of healthy route as far as, you know, slowing things down and, and not expecting that things are going to be moving forward in a you know, as fast as they normally would if our world was how it used to be. Do you feel there are some who are giving up and sort of really letting things go? And then there would be others who are actually making that situation worse with, you know, whatever they're doing um, as far as, you know, we see a lot of alcohol consumption and food and, you know, lots of time to cook and all that sort of stuff. Do you feel there's a range of different responses in that way? Yes, but I think we are all prone to, like, we all have a limit. Let me yeah. put it that way. You know, we, we all, all of us, we all have a kind of a breaking point, a point where we all almost literally throw our arms up and say, right, I'm done. That's it. Yeah. Game over. I can't, I can't do this anymore. I'm tapped out or whatever. And I mean, that's a, it's an awful moment for anyone to kind of feel that there's, they've failed or, you know, that they've kind of reached a limit. It's, it's, it's just an awful thing. Um, but if I could just say something about that just quickly, you know, the brain has a job to do just like all parts of the body, you know, like, you know, your, your liver has a job to do and your lungs have a job to do and your heart has a job to do um, and your brain has a job to do as well. Um, essentially, your well, your brain has, in a nutshell, your brain has two jobs. One job is to learn associations between things, which is what we were talking about before. So, you know, your brain will notice that two things happen together and it will then just make that an automatic association. If every time it's time to change lanes when you're driving the car, you, you have to use the indicator, your brain just learns to do that. Um, and in a whole lot of other things that just become automatic. And that that's essentially the, one of the main roles that your brain has is to take things that you have to do consciously and make them unconscious and automatic. And you can see the consequences of that for things like eating behaviors and cravings and stuff like that. But the other job your brain has is to keep you safe. Your brain is is there to see where problems and danger lies um, and basically, you know, be on guard and on alert for that. Now, what does that have to do with failure? Well, when you have a win, your brain says, great, high five, and leaves it at that. But it doesn't kind of learn anything from that. It doesn't take that on board. It doesn't internalize that because it's of no ongoing practical use. The brain, you know, if you get lots of praise or encouragement or, you you know, you just had bariatric surgery, for example, and you feel amazing and people are saying, wow, you look amazing then, you know, of course that's wonderful, but your brain isn't kind of looking at all of that and saying, well, we better make sure we really take this to heart because it's not, there's no danger. There's no, there's no risk. There's no problems. There's nothing to, to kind of keep an eye on. But what about the opposite? What about if you have a terrible day where, you know, you've argued with people or you've just woken up on the wrong side of the bed and then you've, you know, eaten a whole lot of stuff that you think you shouldn't have, or you've, you know, just sat around and, and just lowered your standards or, you know, whatever. You just had a, whatever a terrible day looks like for you, it's been a bad one. Well, your brain will definitely take that to heart. Your brain will say, aha, this is a dangerous day. This is a, this is a risky day. This is a day where we're getting closer to things being bad. And the brain's job is to really take careful note of anything that might be bad and store it away. You know, the ultimate example of this, I mean, if you think about it, 
a lot of things in psychology have a kind of polar opposite. Like we can be happy or sad. We can be uh, excited or bored. We can be warm or cold. So, so everything has a kind of a bipolar, if you like, kind of configuration. So why isn't that true for trauma? Why is it that we can have a horrible experience that's terrifying that then stays with us forever and kind of shapes us and sort of scars us, if you like, but we don't have the opportunity to have a really wonderful experience kind of just makes us happy forever, <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. why, why does it only work in one direction? And that's because the brain's job is to keep you safe. And so it's doing that job best if it's being a kind of on guard, guard dog, always looking for bad things. And, you know, if something good happens, you know, that's great. Yeah. But it's of no real consequence long-term to the brain. It's fascinating, isn't so when, it, when you look at it yeah. like that? So when you have a bad day, that goes in. And when mm-hmm. you have a good day, it just kind of brushes along and doesn't stick. And that's the brain doing its job. So, look, I, I, you know, it's all very well for me to describe it. What about some solutions, Cal? <laughs> <laughs> and I don't have awesome solutions, but what I would say is you can use your logic here. You know, this is essentially what a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy is actually about. It's, mm. it's taking some of those doom and gloom ideas and those doom and gloom feelings and really pulling them apart and saying, well, hang on a sec. Is that really how the world works? Is that really how it is? Is it all one way or does it kind of actually go a bit more both ways? Mm. And just using that logical thinking part to really look at things again and, and pull them apart and, and, and maybe think about them in a bit more of an, an objective evidence-based way. So if you have a day where you just throw your hands up and say, that's it, we're done, over, finished, failed, we're, we're stuffed. Yeah. Well, consider that that may not, that may just be one half of the picture and that mm-hmm. it's really hard to see the other half at that moment. But maybe if you sleep on it or if you give it some time, you might be able to pick those pieces up and, and keep going. You might be surprised that things are not quite as dark as they seem. Yeah, I come back with it with a reasonable um, understanding of it. One of the key words you just said is sleep. I think that's another thing that's pretty hard to come by in times like this. It's yeah. dysregulated. It's I can get to sleep. I can't stay asleep. I can sleep all day, but not sleep at night. You must be seeing it all as far as, you know, how people's sleeping habits are going. How important is it to try and harness as much good sleep as we possibly can? Yeah. Sleep is, sleep is a tricky one. I mean, I think, I think um, everybody knows that it's valuable. Um, just ask someone who can't get enough of it, um, <laughs> how much they crave it. So yes, sleep sleep is a big one and, and it can be really debilitating and demoralizing when um, you can't get to sleep. So as always, I would, you know, use that, you know, that same starting principle, which is be kind to yourself. And if you're having trouble sleeping, you know, yes, it's okay to be frustrated, but be careful not to give yourself too much of a hard time. Don't, you know, it's, it's not that you're failing, um, even if you kind of can see that there are things that you're doing that might've contributed to the problem, well, maybe you had a reason for doing those things. Maybe you were feeling really stressed. And so you really just wanted to stay up watching TV and take your mind off things. I think that's okay. You know, we, we don't, we don't do things with bad intentions, generally speaking. Mm. Um, but, you know, if you think of, if you recognize that sleep is not something that you can just make happen, you know, you can, you can control your arms and your legs and walk from A to B and pick up a cup and put it down. Um, you can blink your eyelids. You can even hold your breath. 
but you can't make yourself sleep. So I, I describe it kind of like a little nocturnal animal, like a little night mouse or something. You, you can't tell it to come to you the way you could call a dog. Um, all you can do is create all of the right conditions and then maybe the animal will come visit. Mm. Um, so that's kind of a way of thinking about how do we achieve sleep? Well, first understand that you don't have direct control over it. All you can do is give it all the encouragement you can and then hope that it comes. But what does that encouragement look like? Well, first of all, you know, uh, like any nocturnal animal, it needs to be dark and it needs to be quiet and there needs to be not too much activity, you know, happening. So, you know, maybe keep the lights low. Um, I discourage people from using backlit um, reading materials or looking at their phone. If you have a TV in your bedroom, um, I think that's going to be the number one way to guarantee that sleep is discouraged from yeah. happening. So that's the first thing. But then just coming back to some of those ideas around teaching that unconscious automatic part of your brain, the associations, if you show your brain that bed is for sleep and nothing else uh, or almost nothing else, you know, you, your brain will just start to learn those two things just the mm -hmm. same way that, you know, every time you sit in front of the TV, you've got some snacks, then, you know, if you sit down without a snack, your brain will say, Hey, shouldn't we have a bowl of chips right now? Well, this, you can achieve the same thing in the, you know, can use that to your advantage when you want to go in and have better sleep. So if every time you go into your bedroom and get on your bed, it's because it's time to sleep and not to do anything else, then your brain will start to learn that association. And so it will just go, okay, I guess it's time to sleep now mm -hmm. and it will be a lot more likely to drift off to sleep. So that means keeping other things out of the bedroom, keeping food out of the bedroom, keeping work out of the bedroom. Um, don't do things on your bed, even things like lying on your bed, having a phone call or a FaceTime with someone during the day. It might be tempting, but if you are having trouble sleeping, then try to kind of quarantine your bed from everything other than sleep. So if that gives you a bit of an idea that, you know, you, you then, you know, you will then kind of train that little nocturnal mouse to, to come visit um, at the right time. The other thing that's really great that's been, I've noticed in the last little while is that there are some really terrific apps. Um, and a lot of them are even just kind of native apps to the, that come with the phone's operating system. Um, I know that the, the two big ones, the iPhones and the Samsungs, they've got some really terrific little sleep procedures on there. Um, so if you go into your settings, I mean, I won't go through it now, but if you, you have a look and, or if you know someone who's a bit tech savvy and they might be able to set you up with a bit of a sleep routine on your, on your phone. And that, will give you a nice regular alarm that kind of gently wakes you up in the morning at the at a regular time, even on weekends. Mm. And it will also kind of automatically kick off a bit of a sleep routine and give you a reminder that it's time to start winding things down. That, that can really help. Again, it sort of helps with all of that, establishing a bit of a routine and get, getting a bit of structure happening around yeah, those consistent. activities. Yeah. And I guess too, at a time when we've got the freedom to drink as many coffees as we want and <laughs> have a few drinks at the end of the day, those sorts of things when you're catching your you know, finding that sleep is not coming easily. It's looking at, you know, the times of day that you include those stimulants and sleep disruptors and having a look at, you know, keeping coffee to the first part of the day perhaps and minimising yep. alcohol. Yeah, it's very hard to maintain that routine and I think it's around the structures you mentioned before is just putting in your own personal, I talk about personal rules quite a bit. It's like, yep. well, I do this so that I feel better tomorrow. I could sit and, you know, have another couple of glasses of wine because it feels good right now. But what will I think of that 
when I haven't slept and I've been woken four or five times a night, will I enjoy my day tomorrow? So it's, you know, having that forward thinking, I guess, respect for one's next day. (laughs) I think, yeah, and sleep is reliant on the regularity. So looking at setting up those routines and on our website, actually, we've got some great blogs on sleep hygiene and I'm sure you do on yours as well. But I think it's a key in managing then the next day, you know, food cravings, mood, what need for exercise. It kind of all starts with how well we slept and starts that next day in a way that we might be able to have a few more wins than we might have if we didn't sleep as well. I'm aware of the time. We and I think about this all day, we? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you're very welcome to talk with us at any time you like because you've come up with some great strategies. I think overall the separation of, you know, our food and our work and those defining boundaries within the house and with others is um, a key takeaway. I think that I work in my home environment every day and I think I've just taken a whole lot out of what I can, how I can readjust the day to, and staying not productive, but on task is another thing so that you don't feel like you have achieved even less because you've gone from a little bit of work, a little bit of washing, a little bit of playing with the dog. You know what I mean? It's like you could do those all on their own and probably feel like you have achieved more rather than little bits and pieces here and there. Yeah. Um, that's what we're Amazing what a difference it makes depending on how you organize your time through the day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you, Cal Patterson, for your time. Pleasure. It's always great to talk with you and we'll have all of your ways of contacting you on our show notes as well, your website address. I know you're all very busy and you've got other practitioners who can take good care. You're doing telehealth at the moment? Uh, Yeah, yeah, we're doing uh, face-to-face where safe um, and telehealth um, where people need to work a bit further afield. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's kind of a positive we're drawing from COVID is amazing practitioners like yourself who are available wherever you are in Australia. So there's one silver lining of the events that have taken place. Well, thank you. And I send our our love to New South Wales at the moment as well, particularly. Yeah, thanks very much. Thank you. Take care and stay safe. Thanks, Cal. Thanks for listening. And just before you go, we would love to hear your feedback. So please give us a rating and review. For other interesting topics of conversation and inspiration, come and drop into our Facebook community at BN Bariatric. If you've enjoyed our podcast, we hope you will share on your Facebook or Instagram and hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode.